The approach to ocean dumping is the worst possible approach. It's really 19th century thinking that natural ecosystems are, you know, infinite empty vessels and that dilution is the solution. Now the science clearly establishes that there's no safe level below which there is no measurable effect of radiation. Every little bit extra adds to the risk of long-term chronic diseases. People who are most vulnerable to those exposures are young children and especially women and girls. If Japanese government managed to just release it as they planned, of course, they were not bearing the costs and uh, they are literally discharging uh, the damage, the destruction to if not the total rest of the world, but the rest of the region. And then that incurs a huge injustice issue there. And IAEA as washed up UN, whatever they are sort of advocating now, are really totally in contradiction with the global agenda, particular UN agenda there as well. I don't think that there's an international mechanism that can stop it. I think Japan has used the UN to help sell this story. Some people are never going to buy it. Japan often ignores international regulatory concerns. They're going to move forward with it, and there will be consequences. And the people of Fukushima will pay a price. Certainly the Japanese seafood industry will pay a price. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to The Chat Lounge. I'm Tu Yun. Joining our topic on Japan's radioactive waste dump into the sea are Chang Huawu, Executive Director of the Professional Association for China's Environment, Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University, and Dr. Tillman Roth, Infectious Diseases and Public Health Physician, Nobel Laureate and Co-President of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. Welcome to the show, everybody. So this is the first time for Dr. Roth to join the chat. Before we, we dive into the details of Japan's plan, let's learn a little bit about his personal experience in Fukushima. So Tillman, I understand you've visited Fukushima um, several times, including in the year not long after the Fukushima disaster, 2013, right? Thanks for having me. And um, yes, thanks for introducing me. I, I first went to Fukushima in August of 2011, so five uh-huh. months after the disaster. And, and I've been there repeatedly, maybe five or six times since, take every opportunity to visit Japan, to go there if I can, to really just to try and A, learn about the situation, B, provide support and sort of independent public health perspective and advice mm. to concerned uh, citizens and, and groups. Um, and, and just to observe the situation for myself, I think it's really important if you're commenting on a situation to have as much direct personal knowledge and experience of it as possible. It's been a remarkable experience each time that disaster has not finished, uh, even if the Japanese government would like would like it to be finished. Indeed. And then tell us um, your, your most memorable moments from uh, your, your trips there. What was it like, you know, immediately after the disaster? It was really chaotic because nobody really knew what was going on because... The mantra in Japan, the the basis for policy at a government, at a regulatory and at a nuclear utility level was to essentially deny the possibility of a nuclear accident. There was none of the effective preparation that's required for any kind of effective emergency or public health response to a disaster. So people were in complete confusion. There was really conflicting information, a huge lack of information. Mm. Uh, People who should have been evacuated were not evacuated. People sometimes were moved 
from less contaminated areas into more contaminated areas because it was not clear, even though the Japanese government had a very good model that predicted the fallout and the measurements confirmed that, that the predominant cloud would go to the northeast towards um, Fukushima City. That was not widely communicated. So people actually headed from less into more contaminated areas. Some people had to move six or seven or even more times in one of the most affected areas in Itate, a mountainous area just um, on that northeast fallout path. People were unaware there had been no official measurements taken until Greenpeace activists went there about a month after the disaster in April and discovered the extremely high levels of radioactivity. Mm. And it was only then that people were evacuated. So they had a month of completely unnecessary high exposure. And you're just struck by the insidious nature of radiation. It's it's pernicious in the environment, It's but you can't see or smell or hear or taste, sense it in any way that our human senses can perceive. So you really need to, to be able to measure it. And I think for people to sort of understand what they were dealing with in such a chaotic environment with both lack of transparency, but also just lack, complete lack of preparation, mm. uh, it was very salutary for you know a modern, technically sophisticated society to see that lack of organization and preparation. Mm. You've described some um, very sad scenes there, but uh, since you were there almost immediately after the disaster and uh, you, you seem to be very healthy, you know, 10 years later, d- does it mean people don't have to worry about the radiation or aftermath of the incident anymore today, uh, nearly 12 years later? No, unfortunately not. Um, radiation does decay, uh, but it does move in the environment. This disaster is not finished Yes, there are still ongoing releases and ongoing risks from those complex, multiply damaged, you know, really large nuclear facility in an area that's very prone to earthquakes and tsunamis on an ongoing basis. And radiation, unfortunately, the harm can't be undone once Mm. exposure happens. Uh, It's only, you know, very high doses that produce symptoms acutely within hours or days of of exposure. But long-term even lower level exposures, and we now the science clearly establishes that there's no safe level below which there is no discernible or measurable effect of radiation. Every little bit extra um, adds to the risk of long-term chronic disease, especially heart attacks and strokes and other cardiovascular mm. diseases, and also adds to the cancer risk, of course, the best known effect. So those, um, the people who are most vulnerable to those exposures are young children, and especially women and girls. Women and girls are on the whole about 40 t- 40%, I'm sorry, more susceptible to long-term cancer induction for the same dose of radiation exposure as men and boys are. So young girls are about four or five times more susceptible to those long-term impacts than adult male like me, for example. And one of the aspects that's particularly concerned me as a health professional is that the Japanese government increased the maximum permissible level of radiation exposure which in most countries around the world is set at one millisievert per year. That's the, the way it's, um, it's expressed. It's not a level below which there are no effects, but it's you know, the traditional compromise between the ideal and the, and the practical. In Japan, what happened within weeks of the disaster is that that level of one millisievert acceptable dose for every member of the population, even chronically ill people, pregnant women, young children, was increased to 20 millisieverts per year, which is the usual occupational dose limit for usually younger, healthy, mostly males Mm. um, working in a monitored environment. And that level hasn't been reduced. So that's the basis, that unprecedentedly high level is the basis for Japanese government planning and declarations of areas as needing evacuation or not, 
um, its provision of assistance for people who've, who've voluntarily evacuated. No other country on earth in response to a, a nuclear contamination incident has accepted such a high level of exposure for its population for such a long time. You know, this is now more than a decade after the disaster with no time frame to reduce that level. So a lot of people are receiving doses that are considered acceptable from an official point of view, but that biologically we know um, will certainly add to their risk. Yeah. And while the monitoring systems are not very good, it's really clear that there's already a, a small but definitely discernible epidemic of thyroid cancer in children, as you would expect from the experience of the Chernobyl disaster. Yeah, maybe it's because the high level of exposure to radiation inside its country, that the Japanese government is now trying to, if you will, export it. it it's steadily pushing forward its um, controversial plan to, to release into the sea more than one million tons of radioactive wastewater from its um, crippled um, nuclear power plant. And Tokyo has also announced it would do so around spring or summer this year. That's uh, within weeks or months. So I'm wondering what's behind such a timing, Changhua. Does it have anything to do with the, you know, the properties of ocean currents in spring and summer when Tokyo made the decision, probably? Uh, thank you for having me on this program again. Now, before answering questions, actually, I really want to thank you, Professor Roth, actually, for sharing his on-site direct insightful analysis and mm. also the facts and the data. Obviously, you know, as a sort of the remote observer or commentator in the last decades of this, you know, uh, situation of this unfortunate situation, uh, we've been mostly commenting on things about, you know, discharge of the, you know, treated or untreated or treated not treated adequately, uh, the radioactive wastewater and discharging issues there but we all recognize actually in reality uh, the, the the challenge is much more complicated actually even more dire actually than anyone could imagine According to what I've learned, observed so far, I think the biggest uh, motive actually for the Japanese government to announce uh, the release uh, with more clarity in terms of timeline is more like running out of the storage space there. Mm. Uh, in the last decade or so, now we know many, many like white, blue storage tanks actually piling up, you know, uh, around the nuclear facilities. And uh, literally, there's no more space uh, to continue to do so. A couple of years ago, when uh, former Prime Minister Suga was in office, he had the intention to do so. But somehow back then, he definitely his announcements bumped into very strong resistance from not only neighboring countries, but also NGOs and many others. Uh, so they didn't, re didn't really go ahead with the plan. Uh, so now, somehow, uh, they wanted to do it again and trying to pull enough support as much as possible, including the UN watchdog of the, you know, the, the IAEA and many others, many experts actually in that process to support them to do so. Timing-wise, I'm not an expert about the waves, the currents, whether the timing is related to that, mm -hmm. but obviously uh, they wanted to move ahead partly because uh, running out of space, but in the meantime, I think the complexity behind that, we started to understand more particularly in the introduction by Professor Roth uh, today. But as we all recognize, the resistance probably is even stronger uh, this round, and it's even more complicated there. There's generally a, 
awakening actually from the international community about potentially the consequences actually to not only the maritime, the marine biodiversity, but also to people's health, mm. particularly for neighboring countries as well as for people actually in the Pacific Island nations there. So uh, even though they've announced the plan, um, but I doubt it very much is going to be allowed to go ahead as as, as much as the Japanese government wanted, because more and more so we understand more, particularly in terms of lack of data information, lack of transparency, accountability, lack of trust in all that process, plus with more scientific evidence to, to support the argument that it's going to pose a major threat to both biodiversity and people's life. It's Tom, and I wonder if I, could, if I might just add a very brief comment. I think that argument about we're running out of space is a really spurious one. Technically, you know, in the space that's directly the reactor precinct, that may be true. But there are very substantial areas of land around the plant that are way too contaminated for any possible other use, you know, in the foreseeable future that provide ample space for further expansion. The Japanese government has coordinated the movement of about 14 million cubic metres of contaminated material, soil and surface debris that's been sort of scraped and gathered from mm. all over the prefecture in the vicinity of the reactors because that's the most logical place to put it. There is lots of space uh, if you want to find it to accommodate more water. And, and even if the discharge begins, as I fervently hope it, it doesn't, but, you know, the radioactive water will continue to accumulate on the site and need mm. to be managed for a very long time. Yeah, we'll discuss a little bit more about this other alternatives uh, later on in the show. But uh, Joseph, what's your interpretation of um, the timing? Do you see any anything special about it or is it under some domestic pressure? Or it's nothing special. I don't. I don't see anything special. I'm not an expert on on ocean currents. Mm. From the maps that I've studied, however, the, the currents along uh, Japan's eastern coast tend to move northwards up towards uh, Russia, then Alaska, then down to the, the American Pacific coast. And we know that the plume generally moved in that direction when we had the initial accident. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, perhaps. Professor Ruff uh, knows that point better than I do. I think one of the interesting things about the timing mm. is that if you look at the sort of the, the broader global narrative about this decision to release, and, and I know that for people who pay attention to this issue, and, and that includes a lot of people, of course, and certainly people in, in China and, and Japan and the South Pacific, as well as experts. Uh, but if you look at how the narrative has developed over the last several years, I think a lot of people would think that the releases have already been happening. In other words, I don't know that this is necessarily a type of message management, but I think possibly the outrage that we might otherwise expect from a broader global context has maybe dissipated for whatever reason, because you know, I think a lot of people emotionally dealt with this a year ago or even two years ago when this likelihood was already being floated as an eventuality. But I would I would expect to hear a lot more unhappiness coming from Oregon and, and Washington, uh, Alaska, and California than what we've heard or seen in the international press. And I don't know if the timing is simply this is when they got the uh, International Regulatory Agency to come in and sign off on this issue, or if there's some other guiding logic. But one of the things that, you know, because we don't know things, because they're not talking about, okay, this is the current. I mean, you're, you're asking us these questions, but these, these narratives are not being discussed by Japan. I had to look long and hard today to find where precisely it would be released in the ocean. You know, you know. in other words, are they going to take it further out to sea? And uh, one of the things that I found oddly reassuring is that, and, and I mean this 
almost facetiously, but a little bit genuinely, is that they have a, a pipe that's going a, a kilometer out into the ocean, and that's where they're going to be releasing this water. But I, I can't find more information about that pipe. I can't find where precisely it is. Maybe that's a security issue. But it also seems if, if there's one pipe, and we're talking about uh, what, what's really remarkable about this release is the is the volume. Yes, there are concerns about whether or not it's actually clean, whether it's acceptably clean. But the, the big issue is the volume. And how are you diffusing that? Even Japanese scientists who assure us that it's probably not a risk say they're a little concerned about the volume and we need to have monitoring uh, wherever this is hitting the ocean floor to make sure that, you know, we're not damaging uh, marine biota. Indeed. Uh, Zhonghua, do you, have you learned that whether the Japanese government has come up with a, a reasonable or a scientific solution to that? Like what Joseph mentioned, um, there's a pipe or, I know it's um, it's uh, discharged over a period of 30 years. That might be equivalent, I think, to some delusion there, right? Yeah, no, I, so far I have not really seen officially uh, any Japanese government saying, you know, with all the concerns on the table already, uh, what are the solutions there? Rather, they've been repeating the measures that it's treated, it is safe, and uh, because they rely on the, you know, the, the size of the ocean, the current actually to dilute that, that's the only sort of solution mm -hmm. uh, feasible at this moment there. Uh, I think there are a few other things we do need to pay attention. I think Joseph sort of mentioned it there as well. It's not that like that they have not been discharging any wastewater. Mm. Uh, they're discharging that without really telling uh, the world. I think, uh, you know, uh, that's why actually the, 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 the trust, the lack of trust or accountability of the Tokyo Electric Power Company has been a sort of, uh, you know, uh, in question uh, because even though they've been saying they've been, you know, treated the wastewater, actually, officially, that I said, uh, actually probably they've been treated only one-fifth at most mm. uh, around, you know, back in 2018. And uh, even officially, the Japanese Ministry of Economic Trade and Industry uh, basically did some sort of assessment saying more than three quarters actually of the wastewater still contained unsafe levels of radioactive materials uh, other than tritium. The reason actually they said is because the company had not changed the decontamination systems, filter system there. So even Japanese government officially are telling, somehow partly telling the truth that it's not you know, really well treated at this moment. It's not safe to discharge. But somehow uh, the, the minister, the prime minister office basically saying, you know, yes, it's treated, it's safe, whatever. The other issue in terms of where they're going to discharge it, uh, I think the, the recent debate has been very interesting, particularly the resistance from the Pacific Island nations there. And for a long time, there's a general sort of free, you know, nuclear free sort of a zone, right? And for the Pacific Island nations, there's a consensus there. So people are saying, so if it's safe, why do you discharge it into the Pacific Ocean, right? right? Rather, you could just discharge it in Tokyo, in your neighborhood, yeah. and uh, you could test everything actually in Paris and even store it in Washington. I think that sort of narrative is very, very interesting and compelling in terms of the resistance, of course, on one side, but also the lack of a trust uh, credibility actually on the table. Uh, that's why what we are talking about here today, even though the Japanese government announced a sort of its plan, sort of a timeline actually to the releasing, but somehow the, the resistance uh, will be very, very strong this round as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so hopefully somehow, as Professor Ralph mentioned, there is enough uh, storage space. So there are other alternatives actually uh, to handle the situation, at least a short term, rather than you know discharge it into the Pacific. By the way, actually, uh, last month in Montreal, if you look at the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework, there is the strongest ever message of consensus convened already at the global level that we need to protect land and oceans there. 
you know, we have this 30%, 30% by 2030, uh, meaning we need to address particularly actually the pollution challenge in order to protect biodiversity. We are already in a mess in terms of loss of life and loss of nature. So that definitely has added another layer of resistance to the Japanese government's decision. Hopefully somehow they, they will be able to change their mind down the road. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. You're listening to The Chat Lounge, and we're talking about Japan's move to release radioactive water into the sea. Despite uh, the resistance, uh, like what Joseph just mentioned, the IAEA, the, the International Nuclear Regulator, has given the green light to it and saying it's in line with international practice. Changhua, is it so? Well, if you read it very carefully, actually, the boss of the IAEA said on one side that they're sort of sort of giving the green light, but in the meantime, actually, they're also he's also saying uh, in terms of the the quantity uh, of the wastewater, uh, it's definitely much much larger than usually. You know, part of common practice for today's existing nuclear power plants that they've been releasing the treated wastewater from nuclear power plant on a regular basis there, but the the quantity is much much smaller than that. And uh, in the meantime, he also recognized the complexity. Complication, complexity of the issues there. So I wouldn't really say interpret it in a way that IAEA has definitely given absolutely green light. On one side, they've been saying technically it's safe, there's international standards, they are meeting the standards, but in the meantime, yeah, there are complex complication complexity out there as well. I think in the meantime, they, of course, as the regulatory sort of watchdog of the UN uh, in this area, they have to be held accountable there as well. And they need to probably stand further, you know, scientific expert, you know, assessment, evaluating that process in order to really draw more like a certain conclusion before uh, they express their support for the Japanese government's decision. Mm. I think one reason why this has triggered so many concerns around the world is because of its harmfulness of this um, wastewater. Tillman, you already mentioned how harmful this could be to human health, but um, there are some um, experts or, or people working in the nuclear industry arguing um, the diluted uh, wastewater won't be so harmful because it's released uh, in a span of uh, three decades and it's within the tolerance range of um, human body or the environment, you know, because they say it's the dose that makes the poison. Well, as mentioned, the, there's no level of radiation exposure within below which there is no biological effect. Every little bit extra uh, adds to long-term health risks and potentially transgenerational uh, genetic risks as well. And that's true for every biological species, not, on, not only humans. Of course, those with vested interests and conflicts of interest would provide a reassurance of safety. And I have to unfortunately include the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, in that. You know, the IAEA has a very structurally conflicted mandate. It is both the promoter of all things nuclear, except for nuclear weapons, but nuclear energy and peaceful uses of, of nuclear technology, and also the regulator to ensure the safety of those and the non-diversion to weapons. You know, it does a pretty reasonable job with very limited resources on the latter. But in relation to nuclear power and its and its products, it's, it's in, intrinsically conflicted by its primary mandate in its statute to promote nuclear power. The Pacific Islands Forum, the grouping of 17 nations across the Pacific Islands and the Pacific Rim, including Australia and New Zealand, recently appointed an expert panel of five independent international scientists um, from mainly the United States and Australia, experts in their fields. They were very 
disappointed by the IAEA response and drew attention to it in their report. The IAEA essentially accepted blanket assurances. It, it hasn't examined the water purification system, the so-called ALPS system that Japan has has instituted. They've haven't really taken, responded to the problems and the questions that the scientific panel raised. So unfortunately, I think that that's an unfortunate situation, but essentially we have a conflicted international advisory body in this regard. The approach to ocean dumping is the worst possible approach. It's really 19th century thinking that natural ecosystems are, you know, infinite empty vessels and that dilution is the solution to pollution. And I have to disagree with Joseph, I have to say on this, because yes, if, if you take any amount of radioactive material and dilute it sufficiently, it may, you know, go below some regulatory threshold. Yeah. But that doesn't alter the fact that the, the same amount of material is released into the environment. And it's the total cumulative dose over time. But will, will it degrade or cocktail and they don't decay? just dilute in seawater. They are a number of key radioisotopes are concentrated up to fifty thousand times through biological systems, strontium ninety, cesium in particular. So the animals that live in the sea and on the sea floor can have concentrations going up the food chain tens of thousands of times higher than the water that they're swimming in. So these a number of these key materials both concentrate up the food chain and are also recycled in biological systems in a way that doesn't respect the dilution, whatever dilution initially. And just to comment on the earlier question, the plan that TEPCO has announced is for a one kilometre tunnel out to the ocean floor just outside the Fukushima Daiichi plant. There have been published photographs of the construction already being underway and, and um, some distance of that pipeline already having been constructed. So even before much of the scientific basis is established, uh, these works are certainly progressing. But don't remember the radioactive uh, substance out there in the environment will eventually disappear, right? Or decay or degrade as it, how it works, right? Wouldn't yes, that... of course. But, but some of those have substances have very short half-lives of you know seconds or hours or days. Mm. But some of the, the biologically important ones, particularly the, the cesium and strontium that I mentioned, have half-lives of around 30 years. Mm. So in 30 years' time, there'll be half of the amount that's present today and another 30 years there'll be a quarter of the amount that's present today and so forth. So so yes they do decay but some of the important ones for example carbon 14 uh, carbon you know being an essential building block and one of the isotopes that's most concentrated um, in organisms that has a half life of 5760 years. You know oh. so that's essentially going to be around you know you can say roughly 10 half lives is what it takes for something to basically disappear to less than one thousandth of the original level. So 10 half-lives for carbon-14 is, you know, 57,000 years. Um, so the half-lives of these things vary enormously. There are others with even longer half-lives. Yes, some of the problem can decay more quickly, and, and hopefully we'll come to that in the alternatives, uh, particularly the tritium that's been most discussed. But some of particularly the most biologically important ones take a very long time, and it means they can be recycled. The same cesium or strontium that causes genetic damage in one fish or one child can cause increased risk of illness in their grandchild. Yeah, Joseph, actually, you've, you've already mentioned, but um, faced with so many resistance and uh, severe consequences of the discharge, why did this IAEA just give the green light, just say, go ahead, do whatever you want? 
Well, I'm not sure they said, go ahead and do whatever you want. I think that's a bit of an overstatement. And, <laughs> right. and, and just to... Uh, but just basically. To, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Ruff mentioned uh, more details about the pipe, which I was unaware of. But to, to correct something, I, I didn't say that uh, I thought that diluting this or, or distributing this into the ocean was a good idea uh, or that it was safe. I, I said that's what uh, some Japanese scientists were saying, but they, they acknowledged that it still needed to be monitored. So to, to go back to the, the earlier point, and I think this answers your question in part, with the agency, as Dr. Ruff was mentioning, they do have this double uh, agenda. And part of the larger stakes here politically, I think, is the decision in Japan, which was probably always a decision, right? And, and, and they were always moving in this direction, but they were waiting for public opinion to move. The decision to, to move forward with nuclear energy. Um, and what, what really, I think, provided the catalyst for this was the energy crunch associated with um, the energy crisis associated with the conflict in Ukraine. Mm. And, um, as other countries, for example, we saw a backsliding towards fossil fuels in a, in, a, in a lot of countries, in leading green countries in Europe, moving back to coal. Um, I think there was this, this crisis created this opportunity for a lot of backsliding. You know, before the crisis, as I recall, the, the public opinion in Japan was very much concerned about uh, moving forward with, with nuclear power. But now the, the government is thinking, okay, people are coming around to realizing that we have to live with this and that there are some consequences, that there's some costs. But those costs are better than, you know, the alternative, which is not having enough energy or um, being vulnerable to massive energy inflation. And again, I think this is this is uh, connected to the deeper concerns that, that Japan faces vis-a-vis -vis its, its declining ability to compete in Asia, that it, it remains mired in a, in a middle-income trap. And it uh, has long, even longer than it's been in the middle-income trap, it's been stuck in a, in a middle power trap uh, and completely, uh, uh, not completely, but but substantially dependent on the United States for security to such an extent that it doesn't really have an independent foreign policy. So, you know, Japan is feeling all of these pressures. And so in, in this context, I think that uh, the government feels relatively confident that it's going to be able to move forward and make that argument. But again, as uh, Dr. Ruff said, Japan has been banking on this. They've been building the infrastructure and, and moving forward with this as a foregone conclusion. The infrastructure they build, I think it's much cheaper than uh, the other options they have to take. So, uh, Changhua, of the five um, approaches, uh, which also include uh, dumping the water into concrete pits, uh, as um, Tillman just mentioned, and evaporating and releasing it, is it the cheapest, you know, discharging this whole thing just into the sea? Well, uh, if... Uh, if there were no international resistance at all, if Japanese government managed to just release it as they planned, of course, they were not bearing the costs and uh, they are literally discharging uh, the damage, the destruction to the rest of, if not to the total rest of the world, but the rest of the region. And then that incurs a huge injustice issue there. So I know technically it might be challenging. I've been following a lot of debates, uh, you know, uh, not directly on the site, but I'm delighted to hear directly from Professor Ruff today in terms of they, they do have alternatives, if not longer term, but short term, meaning they do, they should, they would be able to have enough space to store, uh, continue to store more. And that probably should be the immediate uh, solutions there, right? And uh, rather than just really shifting the burden the cost to the rest of the region, uh, you know, at least actually in the Pacific region there. Another matter, 
so throughout the debate, I remember early on when former Prime Minister Suga was in office, when he announced the intention to release the so-called treated wastewater into the Pacific, mm. the U.S. government offered its support as well. I think I need to remind everyone here, mm. the U.S. government sort of has endorsed uh, that decision. As we are debating here today, I, I definitely look forward to hearing more resistance, actually, feedback and comments uh, from uh, like California, Oregon uh, and other U.S. related to sort of uh, government agencies organizations there. So far, I have not heard much. Rather, the resistance has so far mainly come from the region, neighboring nations, Pacific Island nations, and yeah. some international NGOs there. Last point I do want to make, make uh, here, IAEA is the UN watchdog. So what's sort of its positioning and or conflicting sort of positioning to large extent is also in conflict or contradictory probably to the UN Secretary General's position. Uh, the US Secretary General has literally become the champion uh, of the, you know, the, the, the earth, um, a fighter warrior there. And uh, basically the message has become so clear and strong that the Earth's life supporting system are already collapsing and uh, human species collectively, uh, we already together with other forms of life already in the sixth mass extinction, more than ever, urgently than ever, we need to protect, not only to halt any further damage to the nature, including ocean, uh, but also really to reduce recover, remediate as much as possible. So not only the Japanese government as a signatory country actually to the Biodiversity Convention and IAEA as washed up UN, whatever they are sort of advocating now are really totally in contradiction with the global agenda, particularly UN agenda that's there as well. I am hoping that somehow, you know, we, we started debating this and more and more people will join the debate, somehow we'll be able to succeed in really forcing or persuading Japanese government to hold back its decision at this moment. Chang mm. I just mentioned there is actually not so much resistance from outside the region. So I'm wondering why is there such a phenomenon? Is it because you know, people outside of the region or in Europe or in other oceanic areas could be less impacted uh, by this discharge of the radioactive waste. Or they might just think um, environmentalists like you and uh, health experts like Tillman are over-concerned. Well, uh, well, I think the, the simple answer is that, of course, the people may be, you know, in around the Atlantic Oceans, you know, uh, North America, the other side of the coast, and the people probably in Europe, in Africa, uh, they are not really directly impacted, or they are not going to be more directly impacted, comparatively speaking there. But the awareness should be there, because uh, I think, as uh, Joseph mentioned as well, uh, nuclear energy is becoming more mainstream. Of course, on one side, we need to address the climate change issues there. That's why, you know, decarbonization, that is zero carbon, sort of nuclear energy options there, energy security issues there. So nuclear power plants are becoming more and more mainstream. And the risk that the accidents actually happened in Fukushima will probably actually repeat itself again. Uh, in different parts of the world if we do not pay adequate attention to not only the risk itself but also how to make sure we are prepared actually for potential disasters like this as well so yes on one side i think probably they're not directly impacted they're not really aware even for us in the region we're not totally informed right there even today there is generally sort of a lack of data information uh, it's very difficult for people even many experts ngos actually to make very informed decision or opinion at this moment let alone many people further away actually from the regions there in the meantime i think with more you know china is a big player uh, in mm -hmm. terms of nuclear power you know energy there as well somehow we do need to gather together at the global level to deep dive into the 
situation to be not only aware of the risk and how to prepare for the worst, but in the meantime, how to make sure address, you know, come up with the solutions actually to prevent any disaster like this from happening, if not totally, but at least reduce the probability. Mm. And Joseph, I got a question. Yes, Japan can ignore opposition from outside this country, but what about its own people? Within Japan, there are also there's a lot of opposition there, and especially from the fishing industry. And um, doesn't the Japanese government have any fear that its its move or its behavior may affect the votes or affect their future, you know, governance? Well, there is a lot of concern and opposition in Japan, but I, I think this is a, a message that the government can handle. In terms of its propaganda, rather easily. So earlier, I said, you know, there was a little bit of a reassurance from the fact that that they, you know, they weren't taking it far off their coast and dumping it, but just sending it right off their own coast. And so this this means that the waters around Fukushima will be most directly affected. The, the, certainly, the currents carry things, but but when we talk about the public relations aspect. The Fukushima fisheries took a massive hit after the accident in the years after and, it's, and have been recovering. And there's concern that this will erode their image again, uh, and it probably will. Mm. But again, if we look at what the Japanese government decided last year, that they were going to restart several uh, reactors, and uh, they had plans to restart nine units by the end of uh, 2022 and another seven by the summer of 2023. So that's the bigger discussion. That's the bigger movement where public opinion would not, if public opinion was really against nuclear power the way it was after the disaster, then the Japanese government would not be moving so confidently towards uh, advancing the nuclear agenda uh, as they are. So I think they feel like they they can manage that narrative. I think they also feel like they can say, strangely enough, this is um, it's kind of a wink message to the Japanese people. You know what? It is safer for us if we dump it in the ocean as opposed to keeping it uh, on our soil. And so it, it may be that although the Japanese people may not like dumping it in the ocean, they might like that as an alternative to to burying it or, or holding it in tanks longer where it might leak and, and cause some other problem. So we do know that there are a lot of activists in Japan who, who are taking this issue seriously. And we know that they're closely linked to a lot of people in the South Pacific, in the islands that mm. were affected by the nuclear testing, the, the nuclear bomb testing in the 1950s. Yeah. And that's where we've heard most of the anger. Of course, we're hearing uh, concerns from China and South Korea. But where where we really hear a lot of the vitriol is coming from the South Pacific because of that shared experience of, of them being exposed to nuclear testing. And of course, Japan having the experience of being the only country attacked by nuclear weapons. Uh, those communities have long been linked. And the, and the broader narrative there is that, you know, there's there's been this competition uh, international competition soft power, not only between the United States and China in the South Pacific, but also between with Japan trying to uh, establish these deep positive links. And a lot of people now are crying foul that this is where uh, Japan uh, cannot be trusted because they're not taking uh, this issue seriously or, or how it may affect uh, people in the South Pacific. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Another question about its legal action. Can Japan's behavior be brought to, you know, international tribunal? I understand South Korea intended to do so in 2021. I'm not sure if it's materialized. But um, it, obviously, this is under, you know, the, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. So does it mean there's no way to postpone the plan or, or stop Japan 
or even by legal actions? Chonghua. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I'm not an expert actually uh, on the legal issues mm. here, even though I've been participated in a few debates in the last five or six years during that period actually. Mm. So there were options like that and there were proposals like that and uh, on the table, but I have not seen any major steps forward, partly probably because they have not really uh, been able to take that step at this moment. But if there, if the Japanese government was going to really going to take the step forward, uh, I think that's one of the avenues actually uh, to do so. So fingers crossed, as I said, I don't know. But I think it's it's not just legal. It's much, much broader than that, partly because we all know the vulnerability, the weakness actually of the international governance uh, mechanisms, particularly through the UN process. So even though, say, South Korea really somehow took this step, and bring this up actually to the international tribunal. What does that incur? I have no idea at this moment because that's going to require tremendous amount of scientific evidence, data, opinions, whatever, to support the case. Yeah, uh, in the meantime, as I said, I think globally, uh, of course, we have so many crises at the same time: climate change, loss of the nature, you name it. Uh, geopolitics, everything like that. We are in a very difficult situation at this moment. In, you know, at any certain point of time, when governments or society make decisions, somehow we have to do trade-offs, right? And mm-hmm. uh, uh, in this particular case, for instance, uh, you know, we need to address decarbonization of energy systems. There, so nuclear uh, is nuclear power is regarded as a zero for the carbon options there. But in the meantime, actually, the radioactivity, the, the toxicity of the materials, and potentially the accidents, disasters like in the Fukushima and you know, corresponding solutions afterwards uh, would definitely cause much, much more damage, you know, not only to Japan, but mm. to somehow bigger part of the world. How do we deal with that? Globally, we do not have very effective mechanisms, even legal platforms actually to address that. Yeah. Uh, so that's an issue challenge on the table, but somehow we do need somehow everyone joining the force and uh, get the, you know, demand the data, uh, information and transparency and also accountability from the Japanese government in order for this is not going to be a decision made just by the Japanese government, theoretically supported by AEA, but rather it should be a decision made collectively, at least at the regional level, with neighboring nations, with many, you know, Pacific Island nations and many other players, actually, rather than, as I said, rather than leaving everything to the Japanese government mm. uh, at this moment. Yeah, hopefully um, some actions or concrete actions could be taken within the next few months to at least um, postpone Japan's um, move or its plan. But uh, at least for now, it seems Japan's scheduled discharge of um, nuclear wastewater into the sea is inevitable. So a big question is what ramifications or chain reactions will it generate if it goes ahead? Toman, let's start with you. Well, I think at this point, I'd really want to encourage your listeners to go away with the idea that this is not a done deal yet, that this hasn't started, that there are many questions to be answered, that there is substantial international concern, that there are political processes underway. For example, the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, Henry Puna, announced um, at a seminar in Fiji that the Japanese Prime Minister had agreed to meet a high-level delegation from Pacific countries in Japan on the 7th of February, quite soon, to discuss there's a meeting scheduled between TEPCO and the independent experts that the forum appointed as well. So I don't think this is a done deal. And I think, in fact, now is it's really an urgent time to urge Japan to consider the alternatives more effectively and to engage in a much more consultative and inclusive process. I haven't heard of any specific legal interventions being 
canvassed or pursued, but I certainly wouldn't mm. rule them out. And I suspect that, and the Pacific nations are taking very much a, an approach of trying to engage in meaningful consultations and advocacy with Japan. But if push comes to shove, I, it certainly wouldn't be beyond the bounds of possibility that a case in the International Court of Justice, for example, could be could be commenced. But I will caution that the UN system, particularly through the United Nations Human Rights Commission, many national delegations, uh, including in regions distant from Japan in Europe and, and the Americas, have raised significant concerns repeatedly at every opportunity when Japan's human rights situation has been discussed in the Human Rights yeah. Commission and, and raised major concerns which Japan has not adequately addressed. And not that long ago, four United Nations special rapporteurs with responsibilities in health and environmental fields unanimously spoke very strongly against this. So there unfortunately isn't a lot of precedent for Japan taking much notice, certainly through the UN system of those concerns being expressed. But for me, that's an argument at this stage, particularly over the next few months, mm. to increase pressure from governments to engage with Japan to, to urge that this be at least delayed uh, while more ad adequate consideration of alternatives uh, proceeds. But In terms of consequences, you yeah. know, this will add to the, if it proceeds, it will, it will I think, cause significant uh, angst and dismay and concern in Japan, in Fukushima, amongst everybody involved in the seafood industry in Japan and in Pacific nations who, as, as Joseph rightly said, have you know, borne the severe brunt of, of the transboundary, transgenerational consequences of atmospheric nuclear weapons tests and for whom this is, you know, adds insult to injury. And, you know, there will not be immediate discernible biological consequences that will happen over a short time frame, but this will certainly add not insignificantly to the radioactive burden that people across the Pacific and eventually globally bear, which contributes substantially to the load of cancer and chronic diseases uh, that people suffer. And do you have any advice for governments uh, in the region or around the world in handling this or in terms of um, protecting people's health or in terms of public um, health policy? Well, certainly monitoring of what happens if it proceeds will be important, but that's you know, much way second best to actually a preventive approach that properly anticipates the consequences and seeks to minimise them. That's um, true. You know, that will be important. Whatever approach is taken needs to be monitored um, in an independent, rigorous, accountable and transparent way. But countries could offer practical assistance, for example, to, to Japan, um, you know, in consideration of, of alternatives to, to this, uh, for example. I think it would be a, a very significant lost opportunity of, you know, how to more responsibly manage significant long-term waste issues if this ocean dumping proceeds. I think it will be a really retrogressive step. And and for Japan, the political costs that um, have been highlighted are not insignificant in the reputational and relationship issues. I mean, a Japanese prime minister in 1985 reassured the Pacific Forum that Japan would not dump radioactive waste in the Pacific Ocean mm. in disregard of the concern expressed by communities in the region. Yet that seems to be exactly what may be about to happen unless there is you know, really significant international pressure on Japan to reconsider this approach. Mm. How, how likely do you think um, the IAEA may make a U-turn in this regard? It's hard to tell uh, at this moment, as we've been uh, talking about here today. Uh, so uh, even there's a certain level of ambiguity, actually, on the IAEA side as well. And also, as uh, Tilme mentioned early on, 
I think the credibility of IAEA has also put into the test as well. So I cannot speak on behalf of them. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I do want to second strongly two of the points made early on in terms of what should be the solutions, what could potentially unfold down the road. Mm. Uh, I think definitely uh, this, as I want to repeat, that this shall not be a decision just made by the Japanese government. It has to be a collective decision by engaging many other key stakeholders in that process at various levels, not only in the region, probably also at the global level there as well. One additional point I want to also sort of repeat, the Chinese government holds the presidency of the Convention of Biodiversity, you know, Biological Conservation. Mm. So as holder of the presidency, Chinese government is also obligated to actually to play a, a role, not only just as a neighboring country, but also for the global process, because we all agreed upon just the last month in terms of not only stop the loss of nature, but started to recover, restore, remediate actually mm -hmm. the nature in order actually to really achieve the harmony with the nature by mid of the century. And uh, so under that sort of umbrella, uh, Chinese government is also obligated actually to play its role as well, to make sure it will be able to create the avenue and pulling you know, more stakeholders together uh, to participate in that process so that we'll be able to manage this tremendous risk on the table in a much more sort of smooth, more sort of safer, uh, more sustainable manner. And Joseph, um, what's your take on this uh, ramifications of this uh, move once the Pandora's box is open? Well. You know, I think the first uh, point here is to go back to an earlier point uh, about the, the broader concerns related to the global environment. We know that we have not been making progress and, and, and instead have been moving backwards still on climate change. We know that we're in this period called the Anthropocene. We know this correlates with the rise of modern industry and that we have been polluting this planet in unsustainable ways for a long time and we've been unable to significantly reverse that yet despite major progress in, in some areas and certainly uh, the tremendous turnaround that we've seen in China with with uh, green development just in the uh, last 10 years it's, it's been stunning I know I know you've seen that in Beijing and I've seen it here in Shanghai so it has changed in some places but the concern is we don't really know what happens when you dump all of this into the ocean and right. we won't know immediately and this will because we won't see uh, immediately fish floating to the to the top of the water that you know that people are going to be reassured in some way and that would be a mistake but we don't know how this interacts with the growing dead zones that we already have in the ocean the plastics in the ocean we don't know how it interacts with uh, climate change the melting of the polar ice and there is this concern that all of these ecological crises are intersecting in ways that we can't perceive but could lead to a tipping point, right? There was a, an, another study uh, published last week or the week before pointing uh, once again to the likelihood that uh, coronavirus is correlated with climate change. And this isn't the first. We've seen likely a, a pattern now with MERS and SARS. And many people predict that we're going to continue. So there's this concern that we're kind of locked in the downward cycle already that's affecting our capacity to, to take care of the planet. And again, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the issue in part with the energy crisis associated with uh, the conflict in Ukraine, but not entirely uh, by that, is probably what uh, pushed Japan to go ahead and move in this direction more aggressively than perhaps it was at least willing to do publicly uh, beforehand. Um, and then, of course, the broader context, if you look at what we were seeing, there was a, a, a post from Global Times out of Beijing uh, in the last few days that a lot of people raised eyebrows 
about in terms of Japan's uh, militarization and and um, and how they are moving towards a capacity for for striking um, with offensive weapons, uh, and how this fits into the U.S. Uh, Indo-Pacific concept, and and how this is directed at China containment. There there are these much bigger narratives that that we have to place this narrative about Fukushima within and, and Fukushima is itself a major narrative but uh, I think it, it kind of is getting lost in some of these other stories uh, and concerns which all are are part of the same big story right so I would I would be concerned that if this goes forward I don't think that there's an international mechanism that can stop it mm. I think Japan has used the UN to help sell this story some people are never going to buy it I don't think uh, as was noted before Japan often ignores international regulatory concerns I don't think they would ever invite South Korea or China to come in and and discuss this as a, as a stakeholder. They're going to move forward with it, and there will be consequences. And the people of Fukushima will, will pay uh, a price. Certainly, the Japanese seafood industry will pay a price. I'm not going to stop eating fish because eating pork and beef is worse for you, uh, probably. Um, or maybe I'm old enough that I don't have to worry about it. But um, there will be consequences. Uh, but I think uh, there, there, we're faced with a lot of consequences on rushing uh, anyway. And, and not to diminish this one, but to actually say we should be paying more attention to it and how it's interconnected. In one way or another, we, we will be affected, whether it's it's from the isotopes and our seafood or some other thing that we can't immediately perceive. Yeah, I was about to conduct this mini poll, Mona, as uh, whether or what kind of um, your personal countermeasure will you take uh, if Japan's plan um, proceeds as scheduled. And uh, Joseph, you just said you won't uh, stop eating fish, but uh, my answer is um, I will consume less seafood or probably stop eating uh, seafood. And um, what about uh, Changhua and Tillman? What's your answer? Yeah, uh, informed decision will be very, very important. Uh, if we, you could afford to have options, of course, you could make your personal decisions there. Uh, but if not, people had no options. One particular point I do want to emphasize, which mm. I do not think we touched upon much today, right. is the younger generation. Yeah. I really would like to see, uh, you know, at least in our region, uh, in the broader sort of regional Asia-Pacific region, the younger generation will really participate in this process and voice their concerns and play a more active role actually, uh, in this process, just like, you know, a younger generation has been protesting around the world against the climate change, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm hoping somehow, uh, if not everyone, more and more younger generation will be kids, actually, will be joining the forces. Uh, so that will be able to really uh, shifting, uh, you know, if not totally, but somehow dramatically how Japanese government is going to take its next move. Yeah. And Tillman, your answer to that? Well, I decided decades ago that one significant way that I could personally contribute to minimizing environmental adverse consequences of consumption was to eat lower down the food chain. So I've been vegetarian for decades. The question is not us individually. The people who are really going to be most affected by this are coastal communities Mm. around the Pacific and particularly in Pacific Island nations, but also, you know, around the region in the Philippines, um, in Taiwan, elsewhere, where people's livelihoods, subsistence and you know, relies on the sea. And there are crucial cultural practices that, that are associated with living a subsistence life by the sea. They will be the ones who will be most severely impacted in ways that they are least able to, to address. Good point. And with that, we wrap up today's chat. 
This is our last episode of the Year of the Tiger. Many thanks to Dr. Tillman Ruff, infectious diseases and public health physician, Nobel laureate, and co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. Chang Huawu, executive director of the Professional Association for China's Environment, and Joseph Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations, East China Normal University, for talking to us. Wish you all and our listeners a safe, healthy, and prosperous New Year of the Rabbit. Please feel free to leave a review or comment for us, and subscribe to the Chat Lounge wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tuyun. Thank you for being with us. See you next time.